This morning's scripture reading is uh, different from the one that's listed in your bulletin. It is Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and can be found on page 812 of your Black Bible. That's Matthew 28, 16 to 20, on page 812 of your Bible. Before I read the passage, please join me in a prayer for illumination. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of hearing your word preached this morning. Please open our ears and our hearts to the truth that you have for each of us. May we humbly receive all that you want to teach us. Speak through Pastor Mike and transform each of us more into the likeness of your son. In his name we pray, amen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read another passage, too. I just have this thing for the book of Revelation. So I'm going to read... One paragraph from Revelation 5, page 997. It's a repeat from last week, but I'm trying to keep a little continuity here. So Revelation 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The word of the Lord. So Sylvia has copies of the sermon and I've given her a better cue than I did last week. Friends of Jesus Christ, Jim and I have been preaching since Easter about the various ways in which Jesus is making all things new. That's the title of this series, All Things New. Jim gave this sermon this week, the subtitle, Renewing Authority. This isn't the sermon Jim wrote. (laughs) Little unplanned gallbladder surgery got in the way of that. But I decided to keep the title and stick with the theme because it's what we planned together and we'll see what happens. Last week I preached on renewing worship and we studied 
two whole chapters of the book of Revelation, a vision of heavenly worship. And according to that passage, Christ has redeemed us by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood serving his God and Father and reigning with him on the earth. Last week, we focused on what it means to be priests with Jesus. This week, and next week, we'll focus more on what it means to be kings with Jesus. So this week is part A, renewing authority. And next week will be part B, renewing human endeavor. This week, since it's Ascension Sunday, we'll focus more on Jesus and his authority. And, and um, next week on Pentecost, we'll focus more on us and our activity under his authority in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the two things, his authority and our activity, are obviously connected. So I hope you can hold your breath for a week till you get the whole thing. But I want to follow essentially the same pattern I followed last week. I want to explore three questions about authority. What is authority supposed to look like? What goes wrong with authority? And what does renewed authority look like? So what is authority? What can go wrong with authority? And what is renewed authority? <clears throat> authority is something that ultimately belongs to God and that comes from God just because God alone is God, the creator and the ruler of the universe. I don't think I really have to work too hard to prove that to you. Practically every page of the Bible declares that or assumes that starting on the very first page. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's authority. God says, thou shalt or thou shalt not. And the only reason God needs to give is, I am the Lord. But I do want to say something about how God exercises and chooses to exercise his authority. Even though his, his authority is absolute, he can speak and make it happen. But God's authority is, first of all, a generous and benevolent authority. It doesn't mean God tolerates forever rebellion against his authority, but his default desire seems to be to use his authority to bless the creatures that he has created. The end of Psalm 145 expresses that beautifully. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The eyes of all look to you, O Lord, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving towards all he has made. That's how God exercises authority. Second, God's generous authority is also an authority that he seems to delight in conferring on others. The first blessing God gave to the human race, newly created in God's own image, is a blessing that confers authority on us. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth 
and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. But this is where it starts to get really, in a bad way, interesting, especially after the fall. A world where everyone is a king or a queen is not actually a very good world. When everyone rules, then no one really rules. Four times in the book of Judges, you hear a refrain. Does anyone know what it is? Some of you are nodding, right? Someone say it. In those days, there was no king. and Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the result of that is not a pretty picture. It's absolute political and social chaos. Read the book of Judges and you'll see what I mean. So in his wisdom, God seems to let his authority concentrate in the hands of certain people who have responsibility to exercise that. In the small unit of the family, that would be parents. Can you really imagine a family in which the kids called the shots or in which everyone got an equal vote? Again, I think political and social chaos under one roof. In the larger social and political structures, that authority falls to various kinds of rulers or other government officials or government structures depending on place and time and so on. But the book of Daniel acknowledges God's sovereignty over all of this, but, but th that this is God's desire. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever, Daniel 2.20. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up rulers and deposes them. God does it. God is in control. This is God's will. And the Apostle Paul insists that all government authority rests on God's authority. Let every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Challenging words to live by now and in the first century when, say, Nero was the emperor. But when the authority God delegates is exercised properly, it's supposed to be exercised in the same benevolent ways as God's own authority is exercised for the good of creation. Psalm 72, one of the royal psalms, paints a very beautiful picture of this delegated authority in action. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I really should because it's so beautiful. You can do that on your own throughout the week, and I'm sure you will be blessed by it. But let me just read the first four verses of Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people. The hills, the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. That's what a ruler's authority is supposed to look like. A ruler's responsibility is to establish justice and shalom, righteous laws, an equitable distribution of creation's wealth and creation's goods. That benevolent rule 
by God's grace, exercised by a faithful ruler, creates a space into which God pours out blessings so that the whole creation drips with goodness. And that's exactly what the world we live in looks like, right? Right? Righteous laws and an equitable distribution of creation's goods, every hill dripping with goodness. Something has gone wrong. We haven't yet seen anywhere in human history a king or a queen or any system of government that has managed to pull that off and establish it permanently, have we? And it's probably not quite fair to just blame that on the rulers. That's what we always do. Let's have an election. Let's have a revolution. It's not just about the governors and the governments because the governed are also part of the problem. We're all, all too human. And everything we do is all too human. But this gives me a chance to examine how human authority seems to go wrong. Maybe this isn't the only thing that we need to look at, but I notice that God's authority operates from a place of security and abundance. God is secure, and God has abundance. God has no problem handing off some of his authority to his creatures. In fact, he seems to delight in that. Human rulers, on the other hand, usually seem to operate from a place of insecurity and scarcity. We're shaped by our human neediness and our human finiteness, our limitation. And that means we usually operate out of a position of insecurity. Our rulers tend to want authority not to flow downwards like God's, but to flow upwards towards the already powerful. Our rulers usually don't like to let go of their authority. There's not enough of it to go around. They're grasping. They're self-serving. That's a very interesting contrast. For God, power and authority are essentially the means to bless others. God uses his authority to secure justice, to create shalom, to establish truth. Human governments often say that they want to do the same thing. The preamble to our U.S. Constitution that some of you probably know by heart says that the purpose of the Constitution and therefore the purpose of the government is to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, to those last two, common defense and general welfare. It seems like Democrats and Republicans are always tugging a war back and forth on that one. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. Those are good things. Those are good ends to aim at when a government chooses to exercise its authority. But in practice, authority often becomes an end in itself in human political systems. Even if rulers and governments acknowledge their responsibility on paper to provide for the well-being of every citizen and every resident, and in the Old Testament, God's, God's own political system that he conferred upon us that most emphatically included strangers and aliens. But even if governments acknowledge their responsibilities in, in all of those ways, in practice they don't seem to produce the good 
results. Rulers often fall short of their responsibility. And insecurity often produces oppression and injustice. The best description of this, and my favorite one in the Bible, is when Israel asks God to give them a king like the other nations. Take away our divine government, God. We don't want this anymore. Give us a human government. Maybe the biggest mistake any society ever made. Samuel the prophet was shocked and outraged. God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you as their king. They've rejected me. And here's what Samuel says to them. Listen, from 1 Samuel 8. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain. That's a pretty low tax rate, isn't it? Didn't sound good at the time, though. He'll take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And of course, the people refused to listen to this cautionary tale and God said to Samuel okay give them their king and of course it was exactly as Samuel said as it was as it is as it ever shall be world without end oh no not world without end this might sound all too familiar to us in many ways an imperfect government might seem as inevitable as death (coughs) and taxes But we need to hear the voice of Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There is no higher authority than the authority of Jesus. And it's an authority that needs to be and that will be implemented in this world. We can go back to last week's passage for a second, the one I reread today, and remember the way it talks about Jesus. In John's vision, no one was found worthy to take the scroll, the written record of God's plans for his creation. No one was found worthy to open the scroll, to implement those plans. And John begins to weep. But remember the voice. Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is able to do it. Jesus has the authority to do it. But how does Jesus exercise that authority? I think in the most godlike way we can even imagine, by letting go of his authority, of his claims to his own rights, and submitting to abuse of human authority by giving his life to save others. In the vision that John sees, suddenly the lion becomes a sacrificial lamb. 
Here are the next two verses. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. The point is that he suffered injustice to establish something beyond any justice that this world has ever known. He experienced agony to secure our shalom, our peace. He embodies Psalm 72, and since it's actually a prophecy about him, he fulfills it. He's the king that rules rightly and perfectly in and through and by and for the sake of God's grace. He's the king who doesn't operate out of scarcity and insecurity because he rules not on his own authority but on God's. And he operates not out of his own scarcity but out of divine abundance. That's essentially what all of the rulers of the earth fail to do, to make room for God's abundance and, and to find their security in God. If they did that, then there might be some hope. That's what Jesus does. And there's one verse in Psalm 72 that really jumps out at me. Verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May all nations be blessed in him. May they pronounce him happy. In case you don't recognize it, that's a very strong echo of the blessing that God gave to Abraham when he promised him offspring that would not just be a blessing to Abraham, but through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's how God wants to exercise his authority and pour out his abundance. And if you think about it, the authority of Jesus has both of those primary characteristics of God's own authority. It is generous, aimed at blessing others, and it is freely shared with his creatures. And that's the second part of this morning's text from Matthew 28. Jesus claims very unambiguously and emphatically all authority, not just some, not just most, not just 99.9%. .9 All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What comes next? Therefore, go. He shares it with the church. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, pass on his teaching. The teaching that implements his authority concretely in the material creation. That's not a short-term project, obviously. It takes longer than a Ph.D. program. It takes longer than one human lifetime. It's the work of the church throughout the world until he comes again. But the point is, it is our work that he has delegated to us. It's an authority and a responsibility that he's given to us in his name to practice and pass on the ways of his kingdom. And passing them on in words won't do any good if we don't pass them on by modeling them in our practice. That's what it means to be his witnesses and to reign with him on earth. So that's where I'm going to pick up next week. I'll talk about renewing human endeavor, our part in sharing the work that Christ our King does, our part in reigning with him. And I'll focus on three things. I've named them several times this morning. Justice, 
peace or shalom and truth. Our calling as Christians is to work actively for justice, to create shalom not just for ourselves but for others, <clears throat> and to seek, proclaim, and defend the truth in His name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And obviously that includes being as witnesses in the form of evangelism. So you didn't get a whole lot of the, so what are we supposed to do this morning, but if you can hold your breath for just the short space of one week, that will come next week. But I hope this morning you got some sense of what true authority, restored and renewed authority looks like. It doesn't look much like what you see coming out of Washington or, or even, you know, even Beijing or Moscow or Tehran, not even Ottawa. <laughs> but, it will, but it will allow us to live in these worldly kingdoms, respecting their authority because it comes from him, even if it comes imperfectly from him, but also finding in him a hope that no earthly realm and no earthly ruler can ever offer us. It means to live lives in this world shaped primarily by a citizenship that is not of this world. And meanwhile, the last word should be the last word from the first passage that we heard this week, Christ's own words, Christ's own incredible, unfailing promise. See, I am with you to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, you are eternal. We are a moment. You are strong. We are weak. But somehow you delight to make us strong in your strength. You call us to things that are beyond us, but you assure us that they are not beyond you. So this morning as we celebrate this reality that we believe in our hearts, though we don't see it with our eyes, that you are on the throne forever, we pray that you will encourage us, strengthen us, and equip us to embody the gospel in our lives and to do everything we can to do your good, the good you desire, the blessing you intend in this world we live in. Make us good neighbors. Make us good citizens. Make us good disciples. Father, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.